Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the London School of Economics. If you're not one of our home crowd of students, it's an absolute pleasure to see so many people here for this evening's sustainability lecture. My name is George Gaskell. I'm a pro-director and, um, well, that's enough about me. <laughs> now, this is an unusual lecture, uh, not least because we have an excellent speaker, Andrew Sims from the New Economics Foundation. But the sustainability team at the LSE has decided that these lectures should be accompanied by, uh, let me just get the phrase right, interactive audience feedback. Otherwise known as heckling, I think. Yeah. And you've all been given a CD. Has everyone got a CD? And as you all have noticed, they're red on one side, and silver on the other side. So I'm going to orchestrate some questions and you're going to uh, either agree, which is say yes, which is this one, or no, which is the uh, red side. And somebody is going to take a photograph. Yep, we've got a photographer. So we'll have an instant poll uh, which will well, probably be put up in the school somewhere just to show how modern technology can, um, <laughs> can improve the student experience, etc., etc. Now, I feel because this is new and it's new to me, I'm going to have to try something out on you uh, and make sure everybody, we're all calibrated, or we're all similarly calibrated. So remember, it's no is red and silver is um, yes. So the first question is, who believes in sustaining the planet? Vote now. Well, I see, I see three people with reds, so I'm not going to grill them as to why they're here this evening. I'm going to assume that's what we call in survey research random variation. But, <laughs> For the rest of you, that was very impressive. I'd have liked to have seen them a little higher. So our second question is, did you come here by public transport this evening? Ah, look, that's much better. Is the phot ph photography working? Great. Now, on the strength of the assertion that your feet are not public transport, how many people came on foot? Now, it is, you either answer yes or no. <laughs> of course, that's an ambiguous question. It's an ambiguous question because there's no way, even if you drove here in a Hummer or one of these gas-guzzling cars, you'd have had to leave it outside and walk the last 20 meters. But there we are. Okay, so, um, and the next question, and this is an important question, and it's the last one before I introduce the speaker. Do you consider carbon emissions when purchasing food, and before you vote, I don't think this is whether you like Jerusalem artichokes or not. Well, I think the sustainability team will have to report this to catering, uh, and we'll press on. Now, um, it's my great pleasure to introduce Andrew Sims. Andrew is... Uh, 
sometime student of the LSE. He studied in the Development Studies Institute, Destin, and he's now policy director and head of climate change and energy at the New Economics Foundation. Uh, he uh, has worked for Oxfam, the International Institute for Environment and Development. He's advised various uh, bodies on development issues. He's the author of Ecological Debt, Global Warming and the Wealth of Nations, which was published in 2009. And as I came in, I noticed there was a publish publisher's store with some books, which I hope are your books, and you might be signing them or selling them. Uh, what's the advice on that from... Splendid. So there'll be some um, reduced, reduced price books. So I'm delighted to uh, welcome... Um, Andrew this evening and the uh, lecture he is going to deliver he is going to tell us what the title is because it's not on it's, it's not on my notes Andrew thank you the floor is yours the audience is yours it's an old trick never ne ne never give the um, title in advance in case you change your mind at the last minute keep your options open um, I, I love watching the the yes no exercise it, it's great watching the world's academic elite get to grips with silver or red struggled. One or two of you struggled, I noticed. Um, uh, I'm, going to try, I'm trying something a little bit, a little bit different tonight. Um, the thing I'm going to talk about, or talk to, um, I've tried out just once before. Now, the good thing about that is um, it means at least somebody else was the guinea pig first, and I've been able to correct a few of the errors and polish off a few of the, few of the corners. It, it means if you happen to have been unfortunate enough to be there the one other time I gave this talk, heck, it's going to be pretty similar. Um, the other good side is that normally people in our trade will end up giving the same talk dozens and dozens and dozens of times, which is, of course, something that never happens in universities. There is no such thing as an academic who gives the same lecture year after year after year. So um, hopefully that will be okay. What I'm going to talk about, given that um, my title, The New Economics, let's just say gives us a pretty broad horizon to deal with. And in order to try and impose some sort of shape on this, I thought about one or two things. I'm going to root it a little bit in the United Kingdom, on the basis that, in fact, there is no such thing as new when we come to this. I'm going to talk a little bit about a bit of history. I'm going to talk about Britain as an island nation and the way that our, the things that made our economy what it was, trading as, a, as an island nation. But I'm also going to talk about some of the problems that we came across in that process and how we dealt with change in the past, how we dealt with problems in the past and what we can learn from that for some of the perhaps rather larger changes that we face today. I'm also, I'm guessing, I'm sort of mildly perplexed by the um, three people who didn't want to have a sustainable planet. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that under the, under the random variation rule that you're going to get a few nihilists in any student body. Um, it's just, it's not so obvious when they're not dressed as goths. Um, so, I'm also going to geographically route this. You'll see a few references to one particular... I thought it would be too obvious to do London, so um, it's another port city comes up once or twice. So, if you want to give this a title at all, we can call it A Tale of One City. Um, and 
just to give you just a little hint of the kind of territory I'm going to cover, I'll give you one quote to start with from Joseph Conrad, who said in Hearts of Darkness that the conquest of the earth is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. So here we go. And this is going to take about ish 45 minutes. So if you want to be polite, listen for the first five and set your alarms for about 40, 40 minutes time and then you can wake up for the rousing finale, okay? But we'll get you there. So, dark times. This is a city that knows darkness, but it's given birth to enlightenment. Today, we all walk in something of a, an ominous dusk, balanced on the cusp of losing the climate in which our civilization evolved. But as we waver between chaos and equilibrium, vulnerability and resilience, transition and a sclerotic status quo, can one city's long shadow teach us something useful? Can it help us tell the dawn from the dusk or whether changing to live within the limits of the biosphere will imprison or liberate? That's bad, we've lost one already. Let's listen to the echoes of early footsteps from great endeavours. On the morning of the 27th of June, 1787, Thomas Clarkson was arriving in Bristol. It was the first place he chose to visit in his long campaign to abolish slavery. Approaching the city, he described his feelings. The bells of some of the churches were then ringing. It filled me almost directly with a melancholy for which I could not account. I began now to tremble for the first time at the arduous task I had undertaken of attempting to subvert one of the branches of the commerce of the great place which was then before me. And I questioned whether I should even get out of it alive. The city was well chosen in just 20 years up to 1770. 393 slave ships sailed from Bristol to Africa and onto the Caribbean and America. At its height, the Bristol slave trade saw these floating human tombs embark at the rate of about one a week. In addition to the slavers, in the same period, there were 852 ships which sailed directly to the West Indies to collect the fruits of the slaves' labor, typically sugar. 400 more sailed to the mainland American colonies, collecting their slave-produced cotton and tobacco. To the city's merchants, of course, slavery wasn't uh, an end in itself, but merely a means for greater enrichment. In terms of wealth, the world was a relatively equal place up to the early 18th century. This sometimes shocks people. The average standard of living was probably lower in Europe than the rest of the world. Labourers in South India, for example, earned more than their British equivalents. But two centuries of colonial economic re-engineering would, of course, change all that, leaving a permanent legacy of poverty, conflict and massive inequality. 
There were other economic profits too. Bristol exported firearms and gunpowder to the slavers along the African coast. In 1750, Bristol's first bank was set up on the profits of slavery. The sheer weight of international trade was evident even then. In the middle of the 18th century, Bristol had 261 sugar importers. In one year alone, 1773, the city imported 20,896 hogsheads of sugar from the West Indies. Now, does anybody know what a hogshead is? Experts in measurement? A hogshead is 600 pounds, um, or 600 weight in weight. It's um, now sadly a lost unit of measurement, along with the cat, the open window, and the yak's tongue, only one of which I've made up. <laughs> we'll come back to that at the end, and we can have a straw poll to see which one you think it is. In another single year, 1753, six and a half million pounds of tobacco were imported. Now, things are surely different today, but John Wesley, on one of his frequent visits, preached on the chief besetting sins of Bristol, which he considered to be a love of money and a love of ease. Every cup of sweetened tea drunk in homes and local salons and every rub of tobacco smoked by the waterside not only made the city and the nation richer, but was stained with the sweat and blood of human bondage. Now, during the horror of the infamous Middle Passage, the transatlantic trade quite literally submerged humanity between the sea of commerce and the commerce of the sea. In 1729, the Bristol ship, the Greyhound, left the West African coast with 339 human souls, manacled on board. When it arrived in Barbados, only 214 were still alive. These figures were typical. And the descriptions of the conditions in the bellies of the ships by doctors who, who traveled were unspeakable. I could go into the detail, but it really is literally stomach-churning when you have the eyewitness accounts. Um, the trade continued legally from 1698 to 1807, surreptitiously for decades more, using ships flagged under countries that had not abolished slavery. Now, why did it go on so long? Economic fashion, short-term vested interests, perhaps blinded people to injustice and what now to most modern sensibilities seems a murderous and indefensible exploitation. Uh, a man called Edward Colston was Bristol's greatest benefactor. His legacy still stands today in the walls of Colston Hall on Colston Street, 300 metres from the City Hall. Um, Colston was a sugar merchant who, quotes, built his fortune on the back of the African slave trade and did more than anyone to bring the slave trade to that city. Then there was John Carey, prominent sugar merchant, but also profoundly influential in terms of economic policy. He wrote a, a work in 1695 on trade, which influenced economic thought for about half a century. And Carey wrote that slavery was indeed the best traffic the kingdom hath, as it doth occasionally give so vast an employment to our people, both by sea and land. Now you see how the promise of jobs, even then, was the universal excuse for morally indefensible economic activity. You hear it still today in relation to military spending or climate wrecking new airport runways. And it just goes to show that being influential and successful in business does not, in a larger sense, necessarily make you right. Now, the excesses of history are perhaps easily exposed, a, a, a cheap shot. Perhaps we might even use them subliminally to 
flatten our very modern sense of moral superiority. But compare Carey's words and his attitude with another, written 300 years later. Who do you think said this? I think the economic logic behind dumping a load of toxic waste in the lowest wage country is impeccable and we should face up to that. Someone knows down on the front row here. Those are the words of Lawrence Summers, chief economist of the World Bank, writing in a memo to other bank staff about six months before the United Nations Earth Summit in Rio, in Brazil in uh, 1991. His economic reasoning we saw surface again recently, and it led to 30,000 people in the Ivory Coast seeking compensation from the oil services company Traffic Europe over the effects of toxic waste dumping. You see it too with climate change when rich countries seek to avoid reducing their own emissions by paying into often scientifically rather dodgy carbon offset schemes in poor countries. But summers like Kerry before him was merely following the logic of an economic system that is proud of being what it describes as value free and following that to its inexorable conclusion. José Lutzenberger, Brazil's environment secretary some years ago, wrote to Summers after the memo became public, saying, I quote, your reasoning is perfectly logical, but totally insane. What happened to those two men? Well, Lawrence Summers went on to be US Treasury Secretary under Bill, Kim Bill Clinton, um, president of Harvard University, and is now an economic advisor in the Obama White House. Lutzenberger was sacked shortly after writing his letter to Summers. Exactly the same logic now tells us that the global economy must grow by liquidating its natural assets in order that we may, so said, prosper and be free. But we also shouldn't forget that Bristol, before I tar it too much, also produced great abolitionists as well as slavers, like the socialite turned campaigner Hannah More. Celebrity campaigning is nothing new. She became an integral figure in the movement. She wrote an epic poem whose um, literary quality perhaps was not as important as its sentiment, but it included the lines, shall Britain, where the soul of freedom reigns, forge the chains for others that she herself disdains. It was rather generous, considering at the time that um, only a minority had the vote and women didn't, um, but her point is clear. But now over time, both an overwhelming shift in moral sentiment, led by campaigners like Moore and Clarkson, fueled by the personal stories of the slave themselves, the, the famous narratives, together with a careful demolition of the economic arguments in favor of slavery signaled its end. And then, shortly after abolition in Britain, that same city again, Bristol, gave birth to a man whose endeavors would save countless thousands of lives around the world and continues to do so today. Unintentionally, he also lent us a powerful analogy for why we must learn to live within our environmental means or else invite disaster. It was in 1824, 
child was born, who'd come to be known as the most dangerous man in Britain. And this was ironic because Samuel Plimsoll grew up. The safety of shipping became his obsession. It's easy to understand why. Coming to London, on the 11th of January, 1866, two weeks after setting sail from the East India docks, just downriver from here, a British ship called the London was sinking in the Bay of Biscay. The weather was rough, but nothing that would normally trouble something of the London's size and new build. But the ship, which was owned by these fantastically named Messrs. Money, Wigram and Sons, was overloaded. And as it founded, some of the passengers, expecting to die, hurriedly scribbled letters to the people they loved. One of them, a widower, whose daughter, Edith, was far away on shore, wrote, Farewell, father, brother, sisters and my Edith. Ship, London, Bay of Biscay, Thursday, 12 o'clock, noon. Reason, ship overweighted with cargo, water broken in. God bless my little orphan. Storm, but not too violent for a well-ordered ship. In addition to its 289 passengers and crew, the London had 1,200 tons of iron, 500 tons of coal. Even in calm conditions, the distance between the waterline and its deck, the so-called freeboard, had been just three feet six inches. When it sank, one small boat escaped, 270 drowned. The Sydney Morning Herald, writing about it afterwards, wondered if the London's owners, the, quotes millionaire warm from his wine, found his feast disturbed by the thought that the stroke that destroyed the husband beggared the widow and the child. Now, at the time, Britain's global imperial dominance rested on its role as the naval superpower. But much as James Hansen, the NASA-based climate scientist today, refers to coal-fired power stations as dramatic term, these are his words, death factories, the shipping industry back then was called, I quote, a widow and orphan manufacturing system. The Merchant Navy was a dangerous profession. According to the Board of Trade, during the 1860s, of the average 1,000 wrecks per year, around five of them were due to overloading and unseaworthiness. Sailors called these coffin ships. Some of these coffin ships were just decrepit vessels, the so-called spongy slums of the sea that made drowning a common occupational hazard. Others were good ships, but recklessly overloaded by greedy owners. But they were also the product of a ship owner's quite vicious insurance scam. Unseaworthy vessels were filled with junk, overinsured, and sent to sea for the, in the inevitable to happen. But cases were hard to prove. As one writer, writer put it, to start an investigation would involve heavy expense in obtaining witnesses from overseas. And as often as not, their evidence would be merely hearsay, the real witnesses being drowned. The real witnesses being drowned. Nobody heard any more of the sailors. Either they died or survived and were too poor and voiceless to get a hearing. The real witnesses being drowned. These are words that echo 
through generations to our age of global warming as millions too poor and powerless to be heard struggle to survive on the front line of climate change. In 1871, well after the notorious loss of the Londoner, it was a cause celeb at the time, and many other good but overloaded passenger ships, there were still nearly 900 British merchant ships sinking within 10 miles of our coast in weather that was no more threatening than a strong breeze. Um, this is one little bit of history I'd love to share with you because it just shows the extremity of the system. Because worst of all, if a sailor having signed up found himself about to board a coffin ship, there was little he could do. There was a law, an 1870 law, that made it a criminal offence punished by imprisonment to refuse to board. The police would forcibly keep reluctant sailors on ships. They would follow ships out of port to make sure that the sailors couldn't jump off before the ship was so far out to sea that they couldn't swim back to the shore. It was a legal compulsion. An echo of the legal compulsion on companies today that they must meet first and foremost the demands of maximizing the returns to shareholders bound to a treadmill of endless growth regardless of the human or environmental consequences. Now when complaints were made and regulations suggested there were howls against official interference. Ship owners damned meddling that would, quote, favour foreign rivals and get in the way of free trade. Not that it was remotely free. Here is the same song we hear sung today by the fossil fuel companies and even the banks. Then in 1872, Samuel Plimsoll published a, a pamphlet called Our Seamen, and he led a campaign to introduce a load line, a mark on the side of boats that, when levelled with the water, showed you had reached the ship's maximum safe loading capacity. You might recognise it. It's the symbol used on the underground system. The symbol of the London Underground is the Plimsoll line. But Plimsoll, promoting this seemingly logical, sensible, safe health and safety measure, was damned as the most dangerous man in Britain. He was a kind of an Arthur Scargill, a Chico Mendes, a Hugo Chavez of his time. While mills and factories were starting to be regulated, the ship owners had largely escaped. The more ruthless the operator, the more money they made, this was real laissez-faire. Owners said the introduction of a loan line would bring, quotes, absolute and immediate ruin to the industry. The general attitude of the industry was parodied as, thou shalt not kill, but needs not strive, officiously, to keep alive. I bet you're wondering where this is going, aren't you? Hang on in there, we'll see. Plimsoll went to speak in Bristol on Saturday, the 21st of June, 1873. From the station at, at Temple Meads, I don't know if any of you know Bristol, to the, the White Lion Hotel in Broad Street, which is now one of those lovely chain hotels, the Thistle Hotel, there was a procession of 1,800 people. Sailors pulled Plimsoll's carriage. There were bands, floats of coffin ships, and all the trades were represented. There was between 20 and 30,000 local people lined the streets. A letter in the Western Daily Press, which is a paper that's still published, said Plimsoll was damning all ship owners 
think bankers and oil men, for unmitigated scoundrelism and accused him of being sensationalist. In his speech that evening, ironically at the Colston Hall, he replied, so I am. Is it not a sensational thing for men to choke in the water and to die? And is it not fit that I should speak of that as a sensational matter and in a sensational manner? I have been made an agitator by the simple fact that when for years past the storms of winter were blowing, I knew that men were being wrecked and dying and I could not lie in my bed. The storms of winter, the real witnesses being drowned. In old age, Plimsoll worried that he'd been ineffective, but he'd created the urgency for reform. His biography points out that it was not facts alone that were needed, but indignation and anger. After a decade of furious campaigning, he succeeded. There was uh, the Marine Shipping Act passed in 1876, which introduced the Plimsoll Line. Now, interestingly, Plimsoll later campaigned against the economic Americanization of the world, frightened by the centralization of power that came with the growth of corporate conglomerates. The plaque that marked the site of his birth in Bristol has recently been nicked, but um, his biographer, a woman called Nicolette Jones, uh, summed up his key insight, which I think can be applied just as easily to a number of fairly familiar situations today when she said, if the person who profits is not the person who takes the risk, the one with the profit will tend to increase the risk. And today, I think that one persistent notion is killing us. The doctrine that our current growth-based economic system is the only way to organize our affairs. The idea that competitive or in reality often monopolistic markets based on a, a caricature of freedom so twisted that it tends to produce its very opposite, unconstrained by explicit social objectives and ethical criteria, unbounded by environmental realities, is the best of all possible worlds. Yet the history of just one city tells us that transition is possible, that we can adapt and survive, that we can flourish culturally, socially, even spiritually, dare I say that, from acknowledging the darkness of wrong turns and finding new directions. But to what must we turn our attentions now? What is our plimsoll line? What is our slavery? And what should we do? Today, we risk turning the earth itself into one colossal coffin ship, overloaded by our consumption and waste. That means that, as well as on individual boats, we need a, a planetary scale environmental plimsoll line or lines. One such already exists. It's the assessment of available biocapacity used to measure the ecological footprint. It unfortunately tells us already that it takes 18 months for the Earth's ecological services to provide the goods and services that humanity uses up in just 12 months. Where global warming is concerned, the NASA climate scientist, James Hans again, he warns us that the water is already lapping on our deck. He says that we're on the verge of losing the climatic conditions under which civilization emerged. These are his words. 
You almost have to say that twice. We are on the cusp of losing the climatic conditions in which civilization emerged. And he thinks that we need to reduce the current carbon dioxide concentration level in the atmosphere from where it is right now, about 387 parts per million, down to about 350. Currently, we're increasing at between two and three parts per million a year. Jose Lutzenberger, again, once vividly described humanity's very short, quite literal lifeline. Imagine, he said, the temperature range of the universe as a line where each degree measures one millimeter from the absolute, from absolute zero to the furnaces of imploding stars, that line would stretch, if you can imagine it, for hundreds of thousands of kilometers, reaching beyond the moon. But life on Earth can survive on only about 10 centimeters of that line. People can live comfortably on a fraction of that. Recently, I noticed just around the corner from here, actually, at the British Museum, the oil company BP was sponsoring a, an event to mark the Day of the Dead. I just stopped and thought for a moment. It's un 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 sort of unavoidable the way that sometimes these thoughts kind of barge their way into your consciousness, that considering that their core business is currently um, killing the planet, um, you could see that as a very good investment for the long term on the part of BP. Um, there are more lines still. Uh, in a paper published in the science journal Nature last September, a group of 29 leading international scientists identified nine processes in the biosphere which they referred to as planetary boundaries that we should not cross. There's such things as climate change, biodiversity loss, interference with the nitrogen cycle, ocean acidification, etc., etc. Three of these were already well beyond safety. A number of others were butting up to that level. Setting boundaries is obviously a kind of is a very complex thing. Earth systems change and react in very non-linear ways, and erosion or overburdening of one can have a knock-on effect on others. Um, but suffice to say, there are lines which we need to draw in the atmosphere, in the oceans, in the way that we use our farming systems. What is our slavery? The new economics is a very broad and interdisciplinary doctrine. Um, what is our slavery? Look around. Everywhere we go, we're in carbon chains, locked into infrastructure and consumption patterns that are utterly dependent on fossil fuels. The former oil industry worker and now an analyst of uh, peak oil, Colin Campbell, estimates that fossil fuels provide the equivalent in energy of an army of 22 billion slaves. And this is not the slavery of old, but alongside the Comfort it delivers for some. The pursuit of coal, oil and gas causes war, death and very real human misery. It leaves, for example, up to 6,000 Chinese coal miners dead in a single year and makes the pollution and accidents due to transport two of the world's biggest killers. That's before even considering climate change. The car maker BMW is running this great campaign at the moment where their strapline is, we don't just make cars, we make joy. I just thought you know, might just be a little bit more accurate to say we make traffic and we make climate change. Uh, I, but I think our slavery is also visible in, in the overwork that's linked to feeding the false promise of materialism. It renders us passive, it puts us into a kind of listless consumer suspended animation. The challenge, I think, is to free ourselves to be active producers of our own fate. But first we have to reclaim the idea 
of freedom. I think we have to take it back from those who've stolen and twisted it to serve the interests of a tiny global minority. We have to rescue it from the freedom of a sort of self-centered, almost teenage fantasy that's longed for by market ideologues and extremists, a freedom that sees the mere acknowledgement of the existence and needs of others as an intolerable, an intolerable constraint on individual liberty. In the Open Society and its Enemies, um, published in the early 60s, Karl Popper, who was thought of as a fairly conservative philosopher, observed that, I quote, unqualified freedom is not only self-destructive, but bound to produce its opposite. For if all restraints were removed, there would be nothing whatever to stop the strong enslaving the weak. Therefore, proponents of complete freedom are, in actuality, whatever their intentions, enemies of freedom. But the mainstream error about freedom, I think, goes much deeper than that. It goes to the heart of a central and very difficult human self-deception. Almost a, a cultural vanity about ourselves that we are all utterly independent islands of free will, at any point exercising individual choice and completely in control of our fates. But choice in a consumer society is, of course, a mirage for those who can't afford it, and paradoxically for those who can, too much choice. If you look at the um, behavioral economics, it shows us that too much choice becomes a paralyzing and depressing burden that makes decisions harder and actual choices once made less satisfying. Yet the opposite myths are so persistent that if you criticize the status quo, you're sort of airily dismissed. We're told that people are voting with their feet and wallets for the world as it is. But from a new economic perspective, people are not voting. They're playing a game in which the dice of day-to-day decision-making are hugely loaded to reinforce an already ossified economic structure. Most people, too often, in reality, automatically follow others along deeply worn and heavily signposted tracks towards uncritical overconsumption. Now, just to be really clear, it is absolutely not the case that we have no agency in free will. Thankfully, we do. But decades of research show us that it is psychologically expensive to employ and that for the vast majority of our actions as a result, we take prompts from the world around us, from other people, from culture, from advertising, and our own habits, all of which guide our behavior, inform our identity, and even affect how our brains work. It is a vastly underestimated dynamic. Let me give you an example. There's something that psychologists call stereotype activation. In one groundbreaking study, a group of people were subtly primed with words relating to the stereotype of being elderly. Then, compared to a separate control group, they began to exhibit stereotypical behavior for old age. They actually walked more slowly. They actually became more forgetful. How is this relevant to our own predicament? I did a little bit of primary research. I took a day in a normal week, and I counted two things. First, I counted every advert that I came across, provoking me to be a consumer, whether it was in the papers, on TV, or radio, billboards. 
And then I counted every message I encountered that encouraged my behavior more as a public-spirited citizen who might, for example, take action on climate change. Now, by the end of the day, I don't know if you can guess, I'd been exposed to 454 adverts and three public citizen messages. The latter was so few that I could remember each one. One was a police notice requesting witnesses to a murder. One was a train company message telling people to please not attack their staff. And one was a message to drivers saying, please do not run cyclists over. Now, if I allow for more papers and television at the weekend, it means that in a single year, I roughly estimate that I'll be exposed to about 180,000 prompts to consume, compared with about 1,000 to be a good citizen. Now, to put it another way, on this small but very typical sample, you could say that the stereotype activation in our culture is loaded in favor of consumerism and against citizenship at a stunning ratio of about 180 to 1. Is it surprising that consumer society is so often blind to the planet it depends on? Hannah Arendt famously spoke of the banality of evil. You'll watch TV and read magazines today and you see a kind of banality of consumption that leaves in its wake this great trail of environmental damage. Some of my favorite examples come from the business press, actually. Um, working for an economic think tank, we have to read the Financial Times. Actually, I think it's a very good paper. Um, comes up with some fantastic headlines, though. Um, it also has a magazine, um, brilliant, inspired, so countercultural, given the challenges we face at the moment, you have to respect it, called How to Spend It. How to Spend It is produced specifically to help the over-wealthy be separated from their money if they don't have the imagination to do it themselves. Um, but there was a, there was a headline in, the, um, in 2009 in the FT that ran one of my favorite headlines of all time. China predicts rare earth's shortage. Think about that. China predicts rare earths shortage. Let's unpack that. Now, we know that China's become the factory for the world. We know that in doing so, we export to China a large proportion of our own carbon emissions. And we know that to meet both their domestic race to emulate Western styles of consumerism and meet foreign demand for manufactured goods, China now leads a scramble for global resources and in particular a second scramble for Africa. And there are certain exotic minerals known as rare earths. And they're used in things like um, sort of disposable and endlessly upgraded mobile phones and iPod players and things like that. Now, these are often mined in conditions of human exploitation and environmental degradation. Global commodity traders, utterly immune to irony, have created a market and now a shortage in rare earths. Now, as the product of a satirical imagination, it would possibly be implausible. But the Chinese society of rare earths really did complain that rare earths have been sold too cheaply. And it goes on and gets better. On the very same page of the FT, immediately underneath the story about rare earths was another 
about the booming insurance market for catastrophe bonds. Apparently, according to the paper, they had only really taken off in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Then they dipped a bit with the recession, but now reassuringly, they're on the up and up again. Now, no amount of rational, carefully prepared evidence and argument seems capable of alerting politicians and policymakers to the doomed project, it has to be by the laws of physics, of infinitely trying to grow the global economy on a finite planet. We appear to have progressed very little since John Ruskin's cautionary nautical tale from 1862, in which he wrote, lately, in a wreck of a Californian ship, one of the passengers fastened a belt about him with 200 pounds of gold in it, with which he was found afterwards at the bottom. Now, as he was sinking, had he the gold, or had the gold him? Moment there, little moment, everybody's hanging. What's coming next? What's coming next is a giant hamster, because if that didn't work for you, maybe this will. Put it another way. From birth to puberty, at about six weeks old, a hamster, yes, a hamster, doubles its weight each week. If, then, instead of levelling off in maturity, as animals and things generally in nature do, the hamster continued to double its weight, following the logic that we can have infinite economic growth and endless economic doubling, on its first birthday, we would be facing a very big hamster. Anybody would like to hazard a guess at how much it would weigh? Rough estimate. How many? Oh, there's a man who knows the answer. Um, the answer is nine billion tons. And this very large and very hungry hamster could consume in a single day an entire annual production, global annual production of maize. Uh, there is a reason why in nature things grow in size only to a certain point and then develop more in character and other ways. As it is in nature, so ultimately it must be with the economy. Yet at the moment we're heading ever earlier into ecological debt, consuming more, producing more waste than ecosystems can provide and absorb. The trend has barely been changed by the global recession. In a debate, it's one of my favourites, actually, in, in a debate at the Science Museum last year, um, we were up against, or I was up against someone from a, a very, um, I'll politely call it, a very, very conservative economic think tank. And at, at some point, mildly exasperated, I, I did turn to this other gentleman and say, but where are you going to get the resources for endless, infinite growth? And he stopped and he paused for a moment and he looked a bit thoughtful and then he came back and he said, asteroids? So what should we do? Now here's three, three simple things. There's loads of other things we could do, but I thought I don't want to go away without giving you some sort of handle on the kind of things that we think might help us deal with this problem. They might begin to lay the foundations of a more sustainable economy. Firstly, in the models that have been done and there are very few at the moment. We're trying to sort of develop a, a more sophisticated one at the moment. In the models that have been done that attempt to 
see what an economy would look like, a macroeconomic model of an economy that wasn't premised on the logic of, or the illogic of, infinite growth. One of the few variables that comes up, one of the few levers you've got, is the length of the working week. So firstly, I think perhaps we should start thinking about tackling overconsumption and the simultaneous problems of overwork on the one hand and unemployment on the other by moving to a, a shorter working week. Um, that would enable us to redistribute available work in the formal economy. It would reduce superfluous, unproductive consumption of the rich and help guarantee the livelihoods of the poor. It will be a great leveller that, as the recent work of Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, the social epidemiologists, have shown, um, also greatly reduces a comprehensive range of social and environmental ills. The subtitle of their book, The Spirit Level, giving it all away when it says, you know, more equal um, societies almost always do better. But also, I think importantly, it's going to liberate us from the consumption treadmill. It will increase our wealth of time to do the things that really do deliver well-being. Being friends, um, having time for friends and family, learning new things, being active, relearning forgotten skills, which will be essential to the transition to a post-oil world, and simply being part of community life. Now, recent research on the impact of recession-driven shorter working weeks in the US gives a hint of what's possible. It's revealed big reductions in carbon emissions. There's a, a study done reported in New Scientist magazine in Utah where the municipality put its workers onto a short working week. They saw big reductions in carbon emissions, higher workplace morale, less absenteeism, generally happier people. In other words, kind of less of the wrong kind of work works, delivering more human and environmental well-being all round. Secondly, and simply as described, I think that we need an environmental plimsoll line applied to the global economy to prevent it overloading, simply, and sinking this oddly benign biosphere that has supported the emergence of civilization over the last few thousand years. We can add to the ecological footprint, which is a, a work in process, but a serious attempt to look at a set of sort of biosphere and natural resource accounts and compare that to our levels of use. Um, we could also look at calculating a plenty line, a level of income necessary to live well, but which nevertheless respected environmental limits. Now, we know in advanced industrialised economies like the UK that for decades the link has broken down between rising income and levels of life satisfaction. Thirdly, and a, and a, and a little different, perhaps to help break these carbon chains of consumerism, I would suggest a ban on advertising in public spaces. And we swim in our culture as we would in a fast-flowing river. If the flow is all downstream, only the strongest and most determined few will ever head the other way. Now, the city of Sao Paulo in Brazil, which is not sort of recognized as a nation of doer killjoys, experimented with this. Advertising was, they said, polluting the public realm. Um, which would be more peaceful and happy without it. But there's been similar initiatives in Maine and the US. I mean, at the very least, we can have an obligation placed on advertisers to provide equal and opposite space to their adverts for pro-social, pro-environmental messages in order to demonstrate true corporate responsibility. So there you go. There's three things. I'm going to kind of wrap up now. There's three things to get started. More time, meaningful measures of real economic success, and a, a level cultural playing field to give us and our life support systems a fighting chance. Um,
It's hard to... Every civilization or every sort of society kind of lives at the height of modernity. And it's sometimes hard to remember how different things have been in the past. I think for much of, human, for much of the evolution of human civilization, we saw ourselves as part of a great chain of being. Now, scientifically, that was flawed, but it gave people a sense of place and, and meaning and some comfort. That chain broke down a long time ago, and we find ourselves, in one sense, utterly free from a mythic order, but also often completely lost. The science of climate change is telling us that we stand now before our own gathering dusk, having to believe, as Hegel put it, that Minerva's owl, the legendary symbol for wisdom, will take flight long before civilization's long night arrives. Expect the best, but prepare for the worst. I think in our work, in order to get our bed in the morning, sometimes, rather than just going into denial and trying to ignore the worst-case scenarios, it helps to kind of look past the dusk into the darkest, the darkest spaces and to kind of face it and see if there's anything deep within it, deep within us, capable of overcoming this unprecedented challenge and keeping motivated. Now, this is a very personal thing, but in the same way that you sometimes stumble across insights in the most unlikely places, uh, I found an answer that worked for me in the words of a woman writing in her diary in a prison cell one cold December during the great European upheaval of 1917. Um, I'm just going to kind of round up with this and I'm going to read you this little bit from her diary. This is my answer to how when you look at the seemingly impossible challenges we face as you can keep going. Through the window of a lantern which burns all night outside the prison, the light falls on my blanket. From time to time, one hears the dull rattle of a distant train or the sentry under the windows clearing his throat as he takes a few paces in his heavy boots to limber up his stiff legs. The sand grates so hopelessly under his footfalls, expressive of the utter emptiness and despair of existence in the dank night. I lie still and alone, immured in these manifold layers of darkness, boredom, bondage, winter. And for all that, my heart beats with an inconceivable, unknown inner joy as if I were walking in a flowery meadow in brilliant sunshine. And in the darkness, I smile at life as if I knew some magic secret which gives the lie to all that is evil and sad and transforms it into sheer radiance and happiness. And then I seek to find a reason for this joy and fail to find it, and then I must smile again at myself. I believe the secret is nothing but life itself, the deep nocturnal darkness is as beautiful and soft as velvet, provided one looks at it 
the right way. And in the harsh grinding of the wet sand under the heavy tread of the sentry, there is the small, lovely song of life if one knows how to hear it. That was from the prison diary of Rosa Luxemburg. I've talked about how the history of just one city can teach us a lot about the power and possibility of redemption from our own mistakes. Any place like any person can encompass darkness and light, face the dawn and face the night and choose between them. I think now that our challenge is to make it easy for us to use the freedom that we do have to make the right choices. A favorite writer of mine, the Swedish writer Sven Lindqvist, puts it like this. Actually, you already know enough, and so do I. It is not knowledge we lack. What is missing is the courage to understand what we know and draw conclusions. So, whether you agree with me or not, fellow travelers, I would um, invite you to break your carbon chains and let us use and accept the fact that we are part of the planet that provides us with all the things that we so enjoy and use our understanding of its ecology to set us free. Um, thank you very much for listening. Okay, thank you very much, Andrew. Well, we've got time for some questions, and I uh, imagine there might be quite a few questions, so I would very much like you to uh, keep them brief, please. No mini-lecturettes. And I suggest, if Andrew's happy, we take three at a time, and then he can uh, decide which ones to uh, answer. Gentlemen, there. Hi. Um, I'm wondering if comparing slavery to climate change is uh, a wise comparison, because surely slavery benefited those who profited from the trade, whereas climate change would ultimately harm even those who currently profit from it. So my question is, like, why do you have to make climate change a moral issue and not just an issue of self-preservation? Okay, gentleman in the front row. Hi. Um, well, in evolution, virus serves as kind of like a messenger for change. And so do you think, like, a, a distinction can be drawn from the emergence of, like, flus from cows, birds, and swine over the past 15 years as a uh, sort of maybe perhaps uh, bad consumption. What, what consumption? As bad consumption, yeah. overconsumption, the emergence of these flus. A couple of questions over there. Let's take four this time. Hello. Uh, you were referring to working less to enjoy more life and consume less. Have you had any studies about, you know, in France they implemented 35 hours a week, um, mandatory, um, um, say, work week. Have you had any insight about, has it had any effect on consumption? I mean, maybe it's not, um, it's not a reduction that is enough for people to enjoy more life and consume less, but what, which degree when you say working less, is it 35 hours a week, 10 hours a week? I'd like to know your views on that. And thank you. Uh, hi, you spoke about the fact that you in one day saw 450 some uh, 
commercial messages for increasing your consumption. But in part, I guess, those uh, messages also aim to increase the value of your consumption, uh, turning a pair of jeans into a pair of Levi's jeans or some such. And I was wondering whether you don't think that increasing value, exponential growth, can continue in the face of not increasing actual consumption, but precisely these kinds of commercial messages trying to increase the value of your consumption will help us grow, be part of that world. I may struggle with that one. But, um, That's the advantage, totally advantage of the sustainability, sustainability of taking four questions at a time. You can answer some of them. And <laughs> So to, okay, okay. Um, well, so to rattle through that, um, it's kind of it's interesting, isn't it? That, that you know, that, that you, coming to the first question about um, whether or not it's sensible to, to, to talk about morals and and, 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 morality, and morality when talking about climate change, and um, shouldn't isn't the issue of self-preservation enough? Well, I suppose on one level, some people might argue that um, the issue of self-preservation or the self-preservation of a of a whole society um, is an intrinsically moral um, project, and that even that the, if one can be sort of slightly perverse about it, that the absence of morality is a kind of morality in its own sake. But actually, there's a there's a more detailed answer to that question, in the sense that a lot of the studies about um, behaviours have shown that you tend to get onto one kind of spiral or another. And those spirals tend to be self-reinforcing depending upon the value sets upon which they're based. There's some excellent work done by an American academic called Professor Tim Kasser, who wrote a book called The High Price of Materialism. And he basically shows that um, if you have a society in, in, in which the prevailing um, cultural norm, social norm, is one of high levels of individualism, high levels of sort of... A, consumerism, you've got a quite an atavistic society, um, then those societies tend to be less prone towards pro-environmental behavior. If you have one which is at the other end of the scale, where things are done more communally, where there's a much more communal sort of um, moral, then uh, pro-environmental behaviors are more likely. So it's a very interesting area of study, but actually... Um, you get different results depending upon what prevailing social norms are. And you get, if you compare societies for the, um, if you, I mean, again, this is a kind of an interesting one coming back to the work of Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, where they've shown that not only in more equal societies do you get the reduction of a whole range of social ills in terms of antisocial behavior, crime, and health problems. But in more equal societies, it's also more likely that businesses will be supportive of environmental legislation. So actually, I think the reality is that, um, like it or not, morality is actually at the heart of this equation. Um, is swine flu an example of bad consumption? That's another interesting one as well, which I, I, I have to speak as an outsider, having been a vegetarian for quite a long time. Um, I think swine flu is probably... Um, illustrative probably more of certain agricultural methods and the likelihood of putting animals in highly sort of um, unnatural, unnatural circumstances. On the length of the working week, um, I briefly mentioned a piece of, a piece of work that um, was looking at one of the first sort of grounded cases of where you've had systematic downshifting in the face of the recession. This is a piece of a study done in um, the municipality in, in Utah and it showed that. I mean, there they went to a four-day week. And when they went to a four-day week, 
I think I've got the I think it, the figures about right. I think their greenhouse gas emissions went down by about 13 to 14 percent. They saw an, an increase in, um, or, or rather a fall in absenteeism. They recorded higher levels of workplace morale. And uh, anecdotally, in addition to that, it hasn't really worked its way through in many research papers yet, but there's been an awful lot of anecdotal um, uh, reporting of how counterintuitively, when people through no choice of their own perhaps, even in the UK, have gone to shorter working weeks, they've actually found plenty of really good ways of spending their time. I mean, I know that the experience in France of the 35-hour week is, is a contested one, and there's been research on both sides, and I think depending upon your, um, your prior um, bias, it's been seen as both a, you know, a good and a bad thing. Um, uh, I, I confess I didn't entirely understand the last question, something, about, something to do with uh, if adverts point us towards higher value consumption, it might reduce our overall consumption. Was that your point? My point was that maybe increasing the value of a given level of consumption can be part of that world you're talking about where we don't have it Okay. I'll just leave that one hanging there because I'm not entirely sure how to respond to that. Well, in that case, I'll, I'll come back with the more, if, if that is the sort of the general broad thrust and intention of the question, one of the other problems revealed in a lot of the work on um, uh, behavioral economics is, and this comes out in the work of Tim Kasser as well, is that actually the pursuit of status through material possessions is a, um, a fundamentally unfulfilling project which keeps you bound on this sort of hedonic treadmill of consumption. And it's only actually that if you find your identity, your worth, and your meaning in other more meaningful ways, for example, in the quality of your relationships or, you know, your skill at a particular trade, that you are, you're, you are likely to get to a different phase of consumption. And, and that the other is actually ultimately unfulfilling. And there is a whole sort of load of research on sort of well-being and consumption that sits behind that. Okay, some questions from this side. Gentleman there in the uh, green and here, on over here. You mentioned the benefits of a small, uh, sort of a shorter working week, but is there any evidence um, that the benefit is down to the shorter hours, or just the fact that it's a change from the way we behave already? Okay, okay. gentleman over here. Um, what's your strategy for the de deployment of new economics? That's a big question. Yep, and a uh, gentleman with a pencil in his right hand. Hi. Um, given that climate change presents such an enormous uh, task, uh, that would require a great feat of acrobatics to turn what would seem uh, quite uh, titanic economies, uh, how are we going to meet, say, a reduction target of 350 uh, stabilization in the atmosphere? Uh, in any given scenario, uh, and given some of your examples um, for steps forward, is that fiddling while Rome burns? Okay, let's take those, and then next block of questions from here, final block from there. Um, on, the, on the first one, the reason that spending less time in the form of paid economy and seeing a shift between that and the so-called, you know, 
the, um, the what we call the core the core economy, um, which is kind of family, community, etc., is because um, simply because that beyond a certain level of income and consumption, simply working longer hours to earn more money to be able to buy more stuff doesn't really alter your level of well-being. It doesn't give you a greater flip. You get a kind of a, a, a little bit like a kind of a junk food analogy. You get a quick hit when you have your act of, your act of purchase, you're able to go shopping, but it kind of weighs, wears off really quickly and you go back to your prior levels of well-being. Um, in advanced industrialized economies where you've got a roof over your head, you've got enough food on the table, you've got clothes to wear, um, the variables that are likely to increase your quality of life come much more from having the time to do those things that will enable you to have a higher quality of life. Now that is overwhelmingly about having time. Whether it's having time to be a member of your family, to be a, fa a good father, a good brother, um, a, good, a good son or daughter, or to spend time on the most important friendships and relationships in your life, to be able to pursue learning a new skill or, or whatever. Having more time is the thing that will give you better quality of life. And this comes through in study after study after study. Simply staying stuck at your desk so that you can get the next mark up of car or the slightly larger house or the slightly bigger TV screen may look attractive, but in reality will not increase or alter your level of life satisfaction. And if anything, if you have to work longer hours and sacrifice the time that you could spend to do those other things, it may actually undermine it. Um, on the strategy... Um, Is this the one hour or the two hour answer? Exactly. Um, the strategy, I, I think I'll cheat on this one. Um, there's, I think there's a book outside called The New Economics, Perfect. actually. Perfect. Uh, it's got loads of bullet points in it. Um, it's impossible to answer that one any more comprehensively. And, and on the final one, um, uh, it's one of those questions, I'm glad you asked me that. We did produce a report towards the end of last year, which is called The Great Transition. And in it we do a sort of... Uh, a rough initial model of the UK economy, what you'd have to do to get to climate safety, how you'd have to restructure and re-engineer the economy. Um, and one of the things that it shows is that you can't win by playing with the rules that we've got and the measurement system that we've got. But what you can do is even, you could have an economy like the UK in which our GDP went down, but if we had a measurement system which recognised social value and environmental value, you could still see a rise in value, if you like. But it's a free download on the NEF website, so neweconomics.org, The Great Transition. Um, if you want a copy, just drop us a line and we'll post you one. Good. Questions from this block? There's a gentleman at the back. Thank you very much for an entertaining lecture. Um, in agreement with uh, the general principles of everything you're saying, and I know the work reasonably well, the question that you're always asked outside of this bubble by economists or senior politicians is what about the social instability that that will initially bring? You'll know this question very well from your own work, but nice for this audience to hear um, an answer to that. How do we cope with the social instability that a low zero or degrowth model brings? Question from Cranfield. Thank you. Um, I may be misquoting you, but I think you said that military spending was immoral. Military spending. Immoral. I might have said something a bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> bearing where's, in mind, where's this going? Yeah, well, on. bearing in mind we're an island nation and depend on, for example, the Navy for sort of protection of our sea lines of communication and so on, and our future prosperity, do you see, or what do you see the role being of the armed forces in either your new economics or the transition to your new economics 
other than perhaps killing the hamster. Okay, that's finished with that block. Let's take these two and then we'll final questions from uh, the next block. I mean, my answer to the question on social inst instability is that this cannot be dealt with in isolation of um, moves to greater equality. Now, um, when we did the exercise on the Great Transition, the model we took was to move the UK to, for example, Danish levels of equality. So actually, perversely, if you get it right, you could have a more stable society, not, 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 not a more unstable society. Um, that's the short version of that. Uh, I think on military spending, We've got some really big policy choices at the moment. There's, a, for example, an outstanding question about whether uh, to cover the full lifetime costs of replacing Trident. We put aside £97 billion to do that. Um, but my, my question would be, would the UK be a more secure uh, country by going down that route rather than spending that on re-engineering our energy infrastructure and our building infrastructure to reduce our energy dependence and increase our resilience to energy shocks, price shocks, and indeed the whole variability of the geopolitics of energy. My argument would be that we need to have, in, I suppose it, you, in the old days it used to be kind of swords into plowshares, or now perhaps it's fords into wind turbines or, or something like that, that we have some, some clear choices in public policy. And if we ask the question, what is going to deliver maximum security to the UK as a country, I think a, a significant degree of conversion um, of military spending towards productive, more productive purposes. I think there's a reason why economists refer to military spending as unproductive expenditure. I'd just like to see a shift of um, a good chunk of that to productive expenditure. Splendid, thank you. A gentleman right at the back, unseen by the speaker, but we will hear you, sir. Yes, thanks for that interesting lecture. My concern is the three things you mentioned in terms of sustainable development, self-deception, and the problem of the West overconsumption with reference to fossil fuels, being one of the largest killers. Considering that the knowledge and data is available and is hardly lacking, why, in your opinion, do you think that the Copenhagen climate change formula failed so dismally, considering the consequences globally? Yeah. Another question over there, and the final question here. Yes. No, no, do take the microphone so the folks at the other side can hear what... Uh, what penetrating point you're putting? Yeah, somewhat related to the last question. I think you've explained very well how we need to try and move to a different model. But one of the things that's really perplexing is um, why, if it doesn't produce well-being, the current system uh, continues. In other words, what is it about this negative spiral that makes it so difficult to escape? It seems to me that it's a sort of an, it's a stable equilibrium. Well, it's not an equilibrium because it's using up resources, but in a sense, it's a stable equilibrium. Everybody's competing with everybody else. And that there might be a problem with artificially imposed limits, for instance, on the working week, in that it's unstable because one person will try to outdo the other by working a little bit longer, and then that person will try to outdo them, and so on. So that you might need some kind of social engineering to enforce it, which might be seen as repressive. It's just an idea. I think one needs to concentrate a bit more on understanding the root causes of what causes of a society that is in a consumerist spiral and why it's so hard to break out of. The final question is, I think the pharmaceutical <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Hi. Um, you talked about to ban 
advertising, or um, I, I just wonder if there's another alternative, or well, it's pro probably not possible to ban advertising in today's economy, but something more on the line of CSR or something like uh, the Unilever's turbine hall uh, thing in, in the Tate Modern. Is, is that a possible alternative? What was the thing about the Tate Modern, sorry? Like the Unilever Commission. Like uh, the, the, the massive great space inside the Tate Modern uh -huh. is sponsored by the Unilever. Uh -huh. So it, that, is that kind of branding strategy uh, a working functioning one in today's economy. Obviously, it's, it's still advertising, but uh, in a way, it's, it's more tied to the cultural uh, functioning of people or, or sustainability. Would that work? Okay. Um, so, very quickly, um, Copenhagen. Copenhagen reminded me of one of the first major environmental um, summits of the, of the last couple of decades, the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992, and there was something said about Rio that um, people went there with low expectations and all of them were met. Um, I went to Copenhagen by train and uh, I had kind of low expectations because if you followed the development of the negotiations, there are certain things which remain fundamentally unchanged. And unfortunately, environmental negotiations in the UN sphere tend to fall victim to what's happened elsewhere. That's to say that the standoff between the likes of India, China, Brazil and the rich world tends to be a reflection of the continuing problems elsewhere in the global economy. That is to say that if India and other, other developing countries feel that the rules of international trade, um, their treatment by international financial markets, the failure of rich countries to deliver on decades worth of, of aid promises or on issues of debt relief, on the hard economics, the, the, the dissatisfaction with how rich countries play and negotiate on the global stage in economic terms tends to get played out in the so-called soft negotiations of environmental policy of the environmental policy sphere. So it's it's when you're there and you realise that actually a climate change conference isn't really about climate change; it's about economics. All these other things surface, and it's a massive, profound block. Um, why does the current system continue? Why is it that human beings keep doing things that might not be in their own interests? Is it so unusual? Think of alcohol. Think of drugs. There are many ways in which both personal behavior patterns and once social norms, once they're established, are inherently self-reproducing that when we get stuck in the rut of a particular behavior pattern, unless something changes in the surrounding framework, it's extremely difficult to get the scale of individual behavior change. If you talk to people who've worked on both the sort of the fair trade and the em environmental sort of product market, they'll tell you that voluntarily, you'll rarely get more than six or seven percent of people to opt in to better ways of doing things. The framework is the framework that needs changing. Um, on the issue of the working week, I would just say that um, it wouldn't be a case of imposing, say, a three or four day limit, but it would be a case of trying to establish a shorter working week as a norm. Um, and let's remember that there's nothing fixed about having a five-day working week. In fact, the length of the working week has been 
fought over and has changed continually throughout history. For example, just to give you a couple of extremes, um, medieval peasants in Britain worked shorter hours than modern Britons in offices do. Go back to the turn of the century and the campaign for, you know, to, uh, to give working people the weekend was cutting-edge political campaigning at the time. There's nothing fixed or given about the structure of the week that we have at the moment, and I think we should, we should see this potentially as um, something of a very interesting area. Um, um, and finally, um, I mean, the only problem with sort of strategies around voluntary strategies around corporate social responsibility um, is that they're great up to a point, but they don't work. Um, time and time and time again, when you look at industries that have been invited to adhere to their own sort of uh, voluntary, policed, uh, new, new and different standards, sooner or later, governments have had to come in to legislate to make, to make it happen. So um, it would be nice to think that um, those kind of changes would happen voluntarily, but I, I'm not holding my breath. Grant, thank you very much. Well, I think we all come to a close, but I've got one announcement. We've got one more bit of audience participation, and I have to thank our speaker. The announcement is that the next lecture in this sustainability in, and practice is going to be in this theatre on uh, the 2nd of February at uh, 6.30 again. And we will be entertaining, or she will be entertaining you, Isabel Dedring, who is Boris Johnson's, the Mayor of London's, environment advisor. And this will be delivering a low-carbon London. Or not, as the case may be. <laughs> Secondly, back to your CDs, please, because we, uh, our photographer must have the camera ready. Good, thank you. Um, I've had to change the uh, second to last question, which was a bit over the top. And the question is, would you say the LSE is providing a useful platform for discussions of sustainability? Please vote now. Jolly good, that'll encourage our sustainability. Take two photographs. You look very shiny like this. Yeah, it's wonderful. Actually, these are halos. From this side, you all look like angels. Will you attend more sustainability and practice events here? Jolly good. Well, that's real encouragement for the folks in the uh, sustainability group here at the LSE. Thank you very much. And just to uh, say, uh, Andrew, that was a uh, most entertaining, most informative uh, and um, uplifting speech. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming, for answering the questions.